Hello everyone, um, we are here today for the first episode of Brain Cherries, a series of podcasts where we will discuss interesting topics and ideas around startups, innovation, art and music. I'm Erika uh, and I'm here with my co-host Lucrezia, who is joining us from Italy. Hello, hi Erika. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. I'm actually at the seaside. I've been here for quite some time because as you all know we're quarantined, so I came here about a month and a half ago and I'm still here. She has a slightly better lifestyle than the one I have in my small apartment in London. <laughs> it means that you have a lot of time for reading. Exactly, for sure. so that's how I found uh, the interesting thing that I'm gonna be talking about today. Um, it's actually related to the health uh, crisis that we are living these days, um, but it's, it's something that gives us hope um, and it's also something that I guess could inspire all of us. What I'll be talking about is uh, a project that actually has many actors um, that joined forces to carry out this project and basically uh, they have been helping for almost a month now um, big hospitals in the northern part of Italy to turn scuba dive masks into um, breathing masks so respirators Can you tell us a little bit more about how the idea happened? Yes, yeah, so uh, basically at the beginning of the crisis when basically when the virus started spreading from the main red area to the rest of northern Italy, the hospitals began to have big problems because they didn't have enough beds or enough parts for the masks, you know. They, they weren't used to having so many people needing those kind of treatments altogether. So what happened is that in the hospital of Brescia, which is about an hour from Milan, around this was around the 10th of March, in the ICU, so the intensive care unit, doctors were quite desperate because they were running out of some spare parts of the respirators and specifically the valve that is required for the whole equipment to work. So basically they started talking to reporters and uh, of course uh, this issue spread around, many people knew about it. And one of the reporters of a local newspaper, her name is Nunzia Vallini. So basically she called a person, I guess that she already knew him, Massimo Temporelli, and he's um, a very well-known expert of innovation in Italy. Um, and so basically she just told him what the situation was and she asked for help. Temporelli um, basically had this idea of trying to produce the missing parts, so the spare parts of the respirator, with the 3D printer. So he contacted other people from fab labs from around the country in order to have help both designing this valve, this missing part, and also um, making it come to life. And, and for, for people of the public who may not know, uh, and actually I've heard it once, but I've never really understood what it is. Can, can you explain what a Fab Lab is? Yeah, so Fab Lab, it's a, it's a really interesting thing, actually. It's the, the inventors define it as a digital fabrication laboratory. Basically, it's a place 
um, where people of different backgrounds meet, different backgrounds and also different ages. Um, so you have, I don't know, a professor and then a scientist, a physicist. You have people with very different backgrounds whose main purpose is to join forces and come up with ideas. For example, in this case, something that could help uh, manage a huge crisis. And within the Fab Labs also, the people who are behind it, so who support the Fab Labs, um, also give material of different kinds for the people who are so part of So you find the materials, them. you find the materials there already yes, in the place? Yes, yes, okay. exactly. So they are organized so that you can join. And once you join, you have everything that you need in order to work. Then, of course, um, I'm sure there's going to be many actors behind the Fab Lab. There's probably volunteer people who give um, equipment, spare equipment that they have, maybe computers, maybe other kinds of materials. Um, I think it's, a, it's the concept of joining forces. It's just a place where you can find people that have right ideas, just like you might have, and that can help you, and also other people who bring the resources that everyone needs in order to make these ideas come to life. Yeah, so that's super cool. Yeah, and Fab Labs are basically everywhere in the world. So if you, nice. if you just type Fab Lab on Google, um, you're going to find a lot of Fab Labs. So Fab Lab is not just one, it's just the concept of how to work, work together um, within this kind of uh, environment. It reminds me once uh, when I was at university in Canada where uh, we, I was in this uh, innovation class and then the teachers brought us to, this, uh, to the engineering department where they had something like a fab lab, I, I believe, with a lot of like 3D printers and laser cuts and then people would go there and like get material and then use the machines to create prototypes for the product. So if you were like a young entrepreneur in the university and you had a product in mind, you could use those facilities to create a prototype and then, you know, go to your future investors and, and present this, uh, this more prototype just to show what the product would look like. So I, I assume very valuable place to be. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's really awesome. Yeah. So basically just to, to end the story. Um, mm -hmm. so Massimo Temporelli, he has actually head of one of the fab labs, but he still contacted other people from other fab labs. Cause of course this was kind of a big thing to do. So he wanted uh, to have other people to help and to give their opinion. And in the end, um, he went to the CEO of a very interesting Italian startup. It's called Isinnova and the CEO is Christian Fracassi. So basically Christian and Massimo together uh, came up with the project and the idea to, to actually print the valve. So actually now uh, with the help of the Fab Lab, but uh, the equipment is printed by Isinnova. And uh, do you have any stats on like uh, the effect of this of this innovation? So potentially how many hospitals used it or how many people they've managed to, you know, to save or to, to treat? Yeah, so like the first article that I read about it uh, had been written about um, a week after they've started and I know that already a hundred, yeah, a hundred valves um, they were able to make a hundred valves in the first week and now I believe it's wow. like a hundred valves every day. 
but so like the production considering that the startup and the whole equipment was not made for these valves it was not intended to print only this equipment this kind of equipment then i think it's pretty it's pretty amazing also because they faced a lot of problems because of course if you can as you can imagine this is medical equipment and especially in italy but i i guess throughout the world you need specific um you know permissions uh patents um, you need to pass different kinds of checks from different institutions in order to actually have your material approved to go into a hospital. Um, so a lot of people actually critiqued them at the beginning, um, which I found quite absurd because um, the, they first tried out the valves without people, of course, but then when the doctors saw, so the, this was a joint work between the inventors who are engineers and physicists um, and the doctors. So the doctors were supervising the process at all times. It's not like me and you starting to make a valve and then putting it inside a respirator in a hospital, you know? It, it was super controlled. Of course, they didn't abide by the traditional steps that you should follow, but then I guess if they were to follow those steps, probably they, they would still be waiting for approval now. So right. um, let's say they didn't go through the usual path, but they were able to, to make this work in as little as a week and people are actually using it now. So the, the second part of the invention, the first part they started printing spare parts and it was so mm -hmm. amazing. So this was just the object, this was just some of the parts that were connected to the main um, main tool. Exactly, exactly. Right. So this was the, the first problem that came, like the, that came up, uh, that made these respirators not working properly. So the respirator was there in the hospital, they were just missing some parts. The suppliers were not producing them. Because as you know, as I guess many of our listeners know, um, all the, the supplies and the production has been either stopped or as it, it's having a hard time crossing borders, which is... And also when demands, uh, when demands rises, it's very tough for, like, for companies to like keep, keep up with the, with the recent demand, especially if it's in a very short amount of time, like it happened in Italy, where there was a surge, a surge in uh, ICU patients in like a matter of few days. So I believe for no normal companies, it's a big bit of a surprise and it's difficult to keep up with the, with the production. Yeah, exactly. So no spare parts. And this was the first step. So first step was, why don't we try to print them with a 3D printer? Also, actually, there's an interesting thing um, that um, the two, the two guys, Christian and Massimo, tried to um, go to the official producers and ask for the CAD design of the of the spare parts. Because of course, like you need the official CAD design in order to make the 3D printer printed. So, so they went to one of the suppliers. Uh, I don't know if it's the only supplier, but they went to this one supplier asking for uh, the the like the design of this valve in order to reproduce it and they denied it. I don't have I, I don't have the name of the supplier, maybe maybe it's better. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone but, but the facts 
speak clearly. Basically, it was, there was also some, um, probably there was some infringement of patents. They weren't yeah, allowed how about to. It's patents. Uh, it's never as simple as it seems when you read an article. So I don't want to blame the supplier 100%, but I'm just reporting the facts the way I read them the first time. And so basically, uh, so he said no, he denied to have access to these drawings. And so they had to draw it from scratch. So basically, Izinova team mm. and Massimo Temporelli and all the other people who joined forces came up with the reproduction, like the, the actual design of the valve and all the spare parts, even though they didn't have the official one, which is already hard enough. So they did it from scratch. So now they had something that they created. They printed it and it actually worked. Um, and of course, like the doctors were amazed because it was a huge help for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so yeah, following this then, I guess like a, a few weeks after this or a few days after this, the doctors went back to Zinova, some other doctors, and they said, okay, you were so great in doing the spare parts. Uh, why don't we try to do something else? Why don't we, since the, the respirating masks were now starting not to be available anymore. So besides for have, for not having, um, for not having spare parts for the existing respirators, you also had that you lacked respirators. You just didn't have enough now after a couple of weeks or so. And so this doctor came up with the idea. His name is uh, Renato Favero. Um, so he came up with the idea of printing some pieces that would make a scuba dive mask become a respirator. Okay. <laughs> so it was like... How does were, that happen? Yeah, you were able to print the valve, you know, you were even able to design the whole thing by yourself without having the official drawings. Why don't you now create something that turns a scuba diving mask into into respirator? And it basically, basically, so the um, the main thing is this other valve that connects the mask to another part, I guess, where the air comes from in the mm. hospital. Um, and they called it the Charlotte uh, valve. So okay. after after a few studies, they they were actually able to turn these scuba diving masks. And now that they had the help though of Decathlon which is a really... The sports company? Yes, the sports company. So uh, quite big player in the market everywhere. Uh, and they, they gave free masks. They gave all the help uh, that they could to understand how you could attach this kind of mask that is not medical equipment whatsoever, but how to make it work with the, with the rest of the equipment from the hospital. That's an amazing story and it seems to be that these are all great examples of when you innovate without asking for permission. Uh, it's, you know, you, you, you can see more and more than sometimes innovation just, just has to happen without having to ask for things, especially because it happens in moments of crisis, it happens where, and it needs to solve problems fast. So I think also this story was a great example of, you know, if they had to ask for permission for, you know, uh, file for a patent or they tried to ask for permission for the original design, but they weren't granted, uh, granted it for, you know, whatever reason it is. But then, you know, without without this permission, they were still able to, to do a great, great deal of innovation. And 
potentially you know save lives and uh, maybe if they had waited for someone to say hey yes you can go ahead you have now my you know sign off uh, probably this this wouldn't have, have happened and it's actually super interesting because so many other in so many other fields uh, this type of innovation happens you know I can I can think of uh, things like Wikipedia where you know um, especially in the open source world where you know people you know for example people write pages of an encyclopedia without having any editor uh, correct them or write them is completely like public based um, and the same with like so many other open source softwares where you know just people doing you know they want to do something voluntarily and they just do almost like peer peer reviews where they review each other's work but effectively they don't have any specific you know sign off from any company there is no no one actually checking the quality of that of that content but Nonetheless, it seems to work, uh, you know, work amazingly. And these are all services that we definitely use uh, use on an everyday basis. So very, very interesting. Yeah, um, it makes us also think actually of the whole bureaucratic process that you have, especially in Italy, to do some things like it should make people um, who, who are responsible or who could do something about changing legislation or maybe making new ones that could help in these kinds of situations. The fact or the thought that if they decided not to proceed, because of course they're risking, they're risking probably a patent infringement, so they're risking to be sued, um, they're risking, um, I don't know, if, if, the, if the ventilator might not work for someone, they are risking that they, um, they, they, they blame it on them. On the, on the inventors, so on Izinova or the Fab Lab. So they're risking a lot, but they are doing it because they're actually saving lives. So um, I guess it makes us think a lot about when legislation makes sense uh, and when it doesn't, and which kind of situations and people, um, especially, which kind of people should be helped and supported when they have ideas like this. And also, yeah, especially supported when it comes maybe uh, to uh, patent infringements or again being sued for whatever reason. Uh, we should not forget about what they did and the lives that they've saved and how much they've helped. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, actually, as I was as I was reading this article and thinking a little bit more about uh, this, you know, the concept of permission permissionless innovation, I actually found that there is a whole book written about that by this author Adam Thierer, which I have not read, but if any of you has read it, please let me know, uh, which apparently argues, uh, it compares uh, countries um, where basically there are certain policies that allow for um, more innovation and uh, other countries with other policies that are more strict, more stringent, uh, that apparently allow for less innovation. So the theory of the book is that actually having stricter regulations in this sense allow for a, a more space for, for innovation. But yeah, I'll, I'll probably give it a read uh, after this episode and see, uh, maybe we can discuss it on a, on a, on a later stage. That's, that's great. And, um, and Lucas, have you found any other cases of other companies, you know, maybe in Italy or somewhere else that, uh, you know, did some, uh, some initiatives in, in, in the same field to try to help out with the situation? Because this is a clear case where it's not just the government that need to do something. It's definitely also companies that need to do something, especially those companies that have the means to do so. So, you know, Decathlon clearly helped in this situation. Have you found uh, any other examples of 
of uh, such situations? Yes, so I must say that since the very beginning, uh, so many, uh, well, both famous people, uh, so VIPs, let's say, but also companies uh, have, have given a lot of money. Um, so, of course, financial support is is really important because it allows you to buy masks, for example, or mm -hmm. the medical gowns, um, gloves. There are so many things like we'll need money for buying these things that are really simple objects, but then in a the moment of need, they are scarce. So right. I must, I have to say, basically, like most of the names of either people or companies that you know in Italy um, have been given money, everyone donated. Um, also, I've heard, I actually know a girl um, who started a campaign uh, to raise uh, some money and she raised quite a lot, I think 100,000 uh, 100, uh, euros, which wow. for, a sing for a single person that is not um, VIP or is not well known by the public is quite a lot. Um, the universities are also giving money. so. Everyone is giving money, also the um, supermarkets, Selunga, for example, is a quite big um, chain of um, supermarkets, has been giving quite a lot of money. Uh, but also companies started to do um, the interesting thing of not only giving money, but if they could uh, allow their production plants to be turned into a plant that produces um, something that is, in, is scarce and in need. So for example, uh, medical gowns or hand sanitizers. Uh, when it comes to Italian companies, um, I can give the name of Giorgio Armani. Uh, so they, so Armani, the, the, the fashion, the fashion, the fashion, yeah, yeah. The fashion brand. So he donated two million overall to to the hospitals. But besides for the money that he donated, um, also he converted all of his production facilities uh, into to producing uh, medical gowns. Okay. So I've always wondered, like, when, you know, say, because I've heard this news of, um, you know, clothing producers that uh, convert their, their um, factories to produce, um, like, masks or, you know, equipment that requires cloth. I've always wondered, like, you know, going back to kind of like patents and, uh, you know, following the rules, like, how do they know what is like a guideline to follow to, you know, do a mask, especially now there is a big debate on like what masks work, what masks don't work, like don't use the, I don't know, the one, the mask that uh, uh, people in the hospital use because that's useless. Like I've always wondered how, how they do it and how they know whether they're doing the right thing and whether they're following the protocol. Well, I'm quite sure that in this case, when, when we're talking about big companies, so there's Armani, but there's also Gucci, for example, mm. which is producing the masks as well as the gowns. And I'm quite sure that they've asked and were granted uh, access to the, the drawings or everything that you need in order to convert um, your production facility to make uh, the equipment. Yeah. I guess for a gown, not... there is a little bit less, uh, less kind of rules. Yeah, yeah, but um, I guess I guess they also have to check that um, the whole environment is clean, is sanitized. You know, like because right. it's true, a gown uh, it's not uh, meant to um, protect your organs. Of course, it's just something that covers you up. But if it was made by with a material that is somehow turns out to be uh, either dangerous or uh, then they prove that the virus 
stays on this material longer than on other materials or maybe it's hard to to sanitize it so to clean mm. it after you've used it once so there are there are actually many things besides for the design uh, and that's that's for sure one thing but there are so many other things that I'm, I'm sure they have to face and also here I mean uh, it's it's great that I guess these people that, that already have huge companies so Armani Gucci they are among the biggest names in fashion uh, in the world um, but they are also facing risk because in these cases you don't really know you don't know um, for example, yeah, you don't know exactly what rules you have to follow, as you were saying. So I'm sure that they they are uh, they are receiving help. They're probably receiving access to the patents and to the processes. But still, it's the first time that the whole world experiences something like this. So you can't you can't say, okay, it's gonna go in this way because it happened before, and so I already know what will happen. Um, we can't reason like that. So all these people also from the big companies are risk takers And I don't think that we can say that just because they have money so they can risk to be sued and then to go to court You know just because they have the money to support the lawsuit um, I don't think so. I think it has to do with the kind of personality that the CEOs and uh, the owners of these companies the decision makers have like those kind of people that that can help and of course money is part of it because unfortunately or fortunately i don't know but money is a big uh, can be a big weapon but on the other hand you also need to have that thing inside of you that makes you care about things yeah and, and also to be honest i've always thought there is always you know the plan b which is doing nothing <laughs> So, yeah, exactly. You know, there are also many people that have money and don't do anything anyway. So I think I find it always, you know, inspiring or, you know, I always find it it's good when people that are, you know, are privileged do something because they could do nothing. So as, as any other person, you know, even people that don't have means, there are some people that don't have means and do something. And, and you know, they, they, they take actions to help other people. And then there are people that don't have means and, and do nothing. So I don't think maybe it's just a, the, the magnitude of what you can do that changes. But in the end, the, the attitude is more a personal thing than not you know whether you're rich you're rich or not so yeah so and uh, actually so regarding the people behind uh, behind these uh, these initiatives do you do you know a little bit more about their backgrounds like were they you know entrepreneurs before is there anything in particular that you found about the people behind the story Yes, yeah, so there are actually many people behind the story because, as I mentioned, like there were, uh, there was a reporter who helped out. Then there was uh, all the doctors helped out. Then they have all the people from the Fab Lab. But let's say the the two main figures that um, I can cite right now are Massimo Temporelli uh, from Fab Lab, one of the Fab Labs, and uh, Christian Fracassi, who's the CEO of the startup Isinova. Um, and uh, I, I suggest you to go check out their profiles on LinkedIn or mm -hmm. on the internet because they're really interesting people. The one thing that surprised me the most or, well, fascinated me, not, not really surprised me because it's something that I've been thinking about for quite some time now, but um, I was uh, really impressed to find out that both these two people, and I don't know if they knew each other before or not, mm -hmm. but... Um, they were similar, they are similar in the sense that uh, they are both men of science 
Massimo Timparelli is a physicist and Christian Fracas is an engineer. So they're both, uh, they both know how to crunch numbers. Uh, they okay. have faced, you know, the hardcore mathematics and, um, you know, all of this. So they are men of science, but at the same time, they're also artists. Because, oh, wow. um, okay. yeah, so Temporelli is also a speaker at the radios. He was speaker, uh, in some TV shows. Um, I know that he, he probably wrote some books or he, like, he, he has many, um, he carries out many initiatives that are related to, to art and to sharing the knowledge, but in a way that everyone can understand it. Uh, so, so he's, He's an inventor, let's say, so it means there's a big part of creativity in him even though his background is being a physicist, so being a man of science. Uh, and in the same way, Fracassi, the CEO of Isinnova, uh, is an engineer, but from what I understood, he graduated in engineer and architecture. So here again, you have someone who's, who is an expert in, in science, engineering, in things that have rules and have numbers. Uh, but at the same time, he's an artist as well. And it was really interesting to me uh, to see that these two people um, that are like the, the faces of what happened in this case, or the faces of what was invented to turn a decathlon scuba dive mask into a ventilator, um, they, they had this common trait of being experts in a scientific subject and at the same time being uh, innovative, being artists and being creative. Yeah, I think sometimes you have to be kind of expert in one, you know, one or more disciplines to be able to kind of like connect the dots and understand that like things that potentially no one sees playing together can actually play together. You know, like a scuba dive mask and, you know, it's, uh, I think you have to be able to kind of think outside the box and probably this comes from, from being good and more than one discipline and not just like being in your field that helps you make interesting connections between things. Um, uh, yeah, there is, a, there is a new concept uh, coming up of, of uh, whether it's better to be specialists or generalists. And I think now there are more and more people that say that to succeed in, in, in the future world, uh, generalists will, will do better. And when they say generalists, they don't mean like a jack of all trade, but you know, they mean people that are expert in more than one discipline. So potentially they are like better than the average in like two or three. Uh, and so they can kind of draw from, uh, from all the different fields and combine this knowledge into like some creative or some like new, new way, of, uh, new way of, uh, of doing things. So very, 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 very interesting. Um, so today is, uh, is Easter. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're locked inside, but uh, I have my neighbors who are grilling food. They started at like 10 a.m. Oh. I woke up, they were grilling. I was already smelling the sausages and, you know, meat. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you opened any egg? So in Italy, we have a big tradition I, I, of uh, yeah. chocolate eggs. I've been drawing some eggs. I, I, oh, okay. Yeah, I painted some eggs. It's quite interesting. So basically, you have to make holes in the egg when it's still full, and then well, like you an, egg, actual, you an actual, an yeah, actual, yeah, yeah, a real egg, a real egg. Okay, okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. So then um, you make the holes, and then you make everything that it's inside coming out, and then you wash it to make it dry, and then you paint it. 
I see, I see. So you don't boil it and then paint it on the outside. No. <laughs> it wouldn't work. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, very nice, very nice. So we will have to share pictures of your uh, Easter eggs then uh, connected to the podcast. Uh, very nice. Uh, I know also know, uh, I don't know if, if the episode is going to be published in time, but uh, I also know that this afternoon there is a, an amazing concert by uh, Bocelli, so the, the opera singer, uh, in, uh, uh, is doing like this solo concert in, in Duomo, and I'm sure they're doing amazing. live stream or recording it everywhere, so probably some worth checking it out even after, you know, after today. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited for this. It's gonna yeah, happen, we'll put uh, the late, link. Later we'll, we'll put, put the link, link yeah. So, so you can, uh, yeah. So you can, uh, you can check this out. Any final thoughts? Yeah, if you have any any questions about how things came to be, like for example, the eggs, the Easter eggs, um, I found that on the Zinova website they have this page where uh, basically they they tell you how things came to be. <laughs> basically, it's it's a quite broad um, definition, but. They have, they picked, and I guess they're like putting more and more things. They've picked some either objects or days, for example, Mother Day or Valentine's Day um, or Easter eggs. Um, and then they like, they tell you how these things came to be, like who decided that it had to be an egg. Uh, that uh, that you had to bring as a gift to your friends at Easter. Um, and so, yeah, so I found What's Easter eggs. <laughs> so, yeah, so the story actually dates back to um, Sun King, you know, Louis, okay. Louis oh, XIV. Louis XIV, yeah, okay. Re Sole uh, in Italian. And, yes, yeah, so he was, uh, he was like this extravagant king. He lived in the marvelous Versailles in, in France, uh, close to Paris. And well, he was extravagant. And at the time they had all these huge parties and everything. So basically at Easter, he asked, uh, for his, uh, his own, I guess he had a own chocolatier, uh, like a guy that would make chocolate. Uh, I'm pretty sure he had his own, uh, <laughs> his own chocolatier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he had this guy and he asked him to make an egg. Um, so like the story, the story is that, um, it started because he wanted this egg at the day of Easter. We don't know why, but, uh, he asked for it and then everyone started giving eggs, uh, chocolate eggs as a gift. But actually also before, uh, the 14th century, uh, sorry, before the 13th, um, uh, we we already saw the egg as a sign of uh, life, basically. Okay. So even yeah, so even uh, in the medieval ages, they were already seeing the egg as uh, basically the earth coming together with the sky, and so and the sign of this union was the egg, and so egg was the sign of life. And then again, Egyptians later on saw the egg as actually the the union of all the four elements so air water earth and fire and all together they will make an egg so basically it's been a sign of life forever and and Which so makes sense for easter 
And then probably uh, chocolate. Chocolate is better than the real egg, and so <laughs> oh, here you have sure. it. <laughs> this for sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any chocolate egg, unfortunately, this uh, this year. But I've had uh, I've had some croissant. Some chocolate croissant. I hope it can uh, almost uh, be a be a substitution. I, I definitely liked it as much as uh, chocolate, so <laughs> oh, that that's gonna be my uh, that's gonna be my Easter egg. Next time, next time I see you, I'll bring you an Easter egg. Thank you, chocolate Thank one. You. <laughs> amazing, amazing, fantastic. Um, so I think uh, we have come to the end. To yeah, the end I think episode. it's it for today. It's, uh, it's, it's all for today. Uh, so, yeah, so I'll uh, see you next week, I guess. Yeah, see you guys soon. Okay. Bye, Erika. See you guys soon. Bye. Bye-bye.